Hi there, and welcome back to the 99%. This is Star. And this is Saint Impostor Women. Been a while, huh? It has. It's been rough. Yeah. Not going on. Alright, uh, let's say that we want to try and talk about um, precursory or CRT. Yeah, um, there's about what it's mostly is, what it's not, and some periods of why it's being attacked so viciously and whatnot. So let's start. Um, the, the kind of broad definition, definition for pro-wrestling is um, a movement that's a question of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and, and power. It concerns many of the same issues that professional civil rights and I think so. It's the discourses like that. And it places a better's uh, perspective. And that includes uh, economics, um, history, and setting, group and self interest, and, and emotions and their own conscience. Um, Unlike uh, the traditional Sarah Watt um, discourse, uh, critical inquiry questions the very foundation of the, the order, including equality to illegal reasoning, enlightenment you know, nationalism, and supposed neutral principles of the law. It's uh, the first break in the 1970s, with some lawyers and actors and legal scholars was that uh, figuring out that the advances of sort of the 60s has brought and coming up more kind of rolling back to the time. Mm. And so uh, they kind of got from the, uh, the more and more the typical uh, workshops was held in the summer of 1989. Um, as well, broad components. So, the figures are Bell. Oh, um, his famous for his English convergent thesis. And he's uh, authored many uh, fun of this foundational text for vertical uh, race theory. Unfortunately, passed in 2011, though. And there's a, when Alan Freeman wrote a number of leading articles, including one that was talking that documented how the U.S. Supreme Court's race jurisprudence, even when supposedly extremely liberal and liberal and whatnot, was still, you know, legitimate racism. There's a Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, um, I think he came and created the term intersectionality, the description of 
of overlapping parts of identity and overlapping expression. Um, it's known a while, and it is a more or less a legal university, college level. It's never been fully taught in, as a kind of grade school level for, you know, from kindergarten to high school. It's college. Um, it's, it's very few spin-off movements, like um, you know, some elements of, I want to say some teach about intersectionality from it. Sure. Uh, ethnic studies courses, and I often have a unit that's it. And it is sociologists, uh, the theologians, you know, etc., etc. They argue CRT and ideal and its ideals. Um, Bear with me, so we can ask all that. Now about some basic tenets of it. Um, it's the concept. Well, the first one is the concept is racism is ordinary. It's not irrational. It's normal, normal science. It's mostly the way society does business, the common everyday experience. So. No, it's a common early experience of most people fall in this country. And the second thing is our system of right over our they serves a kind of important purposes for psychic and material for the dominant group. Um, so a uh, more basic rundown for the first um, tenant. It's mostly more sense that you know, it kind of means that racism is going to be difficult to address and interfix because it's not acknowledged. I.e. like covering or formal conceptions of equality are more layer makes less. And for the second feature, that's as I mentioned earlier, it's sometimes called what interest convergence. And it's it um this the the theory is that racism you know, advances the interests of both the white folks in power and the white elites and us whites elites. Large segments of society have very little incentive to eradicate it. And therefore, they use an example of you know the triumph of civil rights litigation. Uh, might have been according with to Bell's proposal. It might have been more uh, in line with the self-interest of elite whites from that that um one time than any desire to. Help, help, um, black folks. Because he, Bob pointed out the, the, um, we were kind of going, we were going through a, a cold war, and we, uh, 
the United States was um, trying to expand ideas of supposed democracy and whatnot to other countries and developing countries. So, and trying to kind of promote this idea of, hey, you have more freedom there. And, and, you know, they realize is that you can't really say that when you have parts of your population, you know, treated unfairly or can't go to sims and um, restaurants or, or sit in certain in parts of the bus or whatnot. The, the spells you know, proposal that, that if it aligns with the interests of the elite, they may, they may you know, help you know, you know, help um, and with certain elements of, you know, racist or, or, or outdated laws and, and whatnot. However, uh, that also means that uh, the opposite that can be true as well. If it doesn't align with the interests anymore, they can support back and the implications that they have in many ways. Um, Mm -hmm. um, and then the regards to CRT, it's more or less considered a social construct. It holds that um, race and races are parts of a social thought and and it's not conjecture, they're inherent or, you know, set in its ways. It, Corresponds no real measurable, well, scratch that, no real biological or genetic reality. You can measure it if you uh, define your thesis well. Uh, races are just categories that study events, manipulates and prioritizes when it's convenient to the dominant and and uh. Like an example of that would be, you know how um, at one point I portrayed boy, as well as uh, Italians. That was because um, and and they were not considered as part of the dominant group. Uh, they were uh, considered an other. And in the earliest parts of regarding that history of Irish and Italians, ear stripes, they were considered straight up non whites and on par with African Americans for a time. And that changed, and then, and they, they uh, were given the priorities and sourcing of white books and and whatnot. This it was a long process that included, you know, strong party to the Democratic Party, buying wealth, growing labor unions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it shows that concept of whiteness is. Mm -hmm. Thing, it's always shifting, it's malleable. 
but it's also considered valuable in our society. Um, there's also talk about regarding white privilege. It's mostly just a term that refers to the amount of the uh, different social advantages and, and courses that come with being a member of the dominant group race. It's not saying that you're never working your life or something. It's saying that in having two people of different races, one white, another person of color, say, um, Native American, and most likely than not, the white person is going to have a bit more opportunities for the purpose of being in the dominant group and, and not but having being, um, a negative, to be negative stereotypes that are likely to be seen as trustworthy, as innocent, and whatnot. But the book I'm reading, DRT and Introduction, and this one states that with our system, at least in the US, it's, it's racist like a two head hydra. One head is like outright racism, the attempt at oppression of um, some effects on the grounds of they are. The other consists of white prayer and love, it's just a system which whites help and lift each other up, more or less. It's very complicated. Um, 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 a version of white privilege kind of appears in discussions though, regarding affirmative action. A lot of white folks feel that's unfair or quote unquote reverse way racism. Is, um, they're, they're, I mean, the argument rests is on the assumption that the white person who was displaced quote unquote by affirmative action is just an innocent soul facing unfairness. Well, say the black person was guilty or something, or stole of the opportunity. And they, they from the white person, you know? Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, white folks, we don't necessarily see us as having a race. And then we see ourselves generally as just people first. We don't. We're not trained, basically trained that way of life society. We don't face any, any real problems on the basis of being, being of, of the white race. Okay, but, um, yeah, I have this, we're trying to believe that, uh, that thing, uh, that we think, um, reason from the a true viewpoint, a universal viewpoint, and not a white viewpoint. Okay, kind of thing. This not to take the we're trying not to think take other effects opinions into account. More like like our uh, viewpoint is the truth. It's universal. And not coming from being our experience as a white person. Of course this is very violent, very naive. But you know, that's kind of, kind of the gist of all the problems of it. No one's exactly hating and, and, you know, breaking it down for folks unless it's college level. So there's 
element of OF with certain normal class, you get to get into college and who doesn't. And here's more likely you to you get it on the basis of race, gender, or um sexual identity, etc. But, um, it's also, it doesn't just talk about one group of races, racism, or, or towards one group. It, it's, this book in particular kind of brings up that, you know, there's a bit of, there's, this, it kind of brings up different, the mistreatment of other groups. They point out, um, that there's a bit of a binary in this country. Uh, they call it the black-white binary, in which they kind of compare how different groups are treated on the basis of how, you know, first they are chained to being as white versus how close they're to being as a woman and as black. And, um, and that mess up a lot of, you know, like stuff of going through the cracks. It's um it's kinda of hard to say something if you don't really recognize it as uh, certain parts of it. Right. That was very in depth. Yes, yeah, and it does have its criticism, but what any external criticism, um, and it's it has always been you know spoken for. They're always you know kind of confronted that. Um, there's a few folks I think one Randall Kennedy, he took issue with the idea that minority scholars had a unique voice about racial issues. And also, mostly, he criticized instead of those here, the critical race movement, where he's accusing mainstream scholars for ignoring contributions of words of, you know, of color. Um, his argument for that was that the articles and books attract buyers, etc., and that was, is there, was the writer's fault, so they hadn't been recognized, and they should have put it, should have found that they deserved it, or deserved better treatments. And another, a few others, the two folks, uh, one, Susanna Sherry and Daniel Barber, they use you know, CRT theories of hiding behind personal stories and whatnot to advance their points of view. As well as lacking of not having respect for traditional notions of truth and merit, they basically try to use these works of Asian Americans as an example, since they, those groups are considered minorities as well, but they've achieved some high levels of success by commercial standards. They are, and then in code, they argue that. That, that 
and that wouldn't happen if the game was rigged against minorities. But, you know, third the theorists, you know, fighting back, they said that Kennedy himself was guilty of ethnicity and on an empathetic reading of CRT. So, and that because he approached the new movement through commercial criteria and missed opportunities to help and take racial analysis to a new level. And that's for the other two, sharing and fiber. And the theorists basically said that if Asian and Jewish Americans did a spy in the system, that was instead of credit. But why should um, point out some fairness and, and, um, and, and Asian merit standards? Um, like uh, the SMUT, whereas a native actor to either of those groups, to the theorists, showing and uh, further confuse criticism of a standard with criticism of individuals who, who performed well under that standard. Now, of course, you know, it's not a right wing, it's been all over CRT and the arguing that. Yeah, since we had a black president in the U.S., it's we know in our in a post-racial society, and there are no need for further efforts or preparations or etc. Just still, I'm gonna be nice and say naive. Having one black president and a sea of minus president does not a uh, post-racial society make there. There's some internal criticisms for the movement as well. How it takes a, but this more along the lines of I'm not going far enough or we're not focusing on the right things. Activists, this, um, activists, writers, or theorists, or critical researchers, they're basically questioning why isn't it done down? in helping activists deal with the problems of domestic violence, of police brutality, etc. That's, uh, that's, that's, that they should be doing more. And CMT theorists agree with that, and that they need to, you know, with the street activists and, and critical, you know, necessary writers need to work together. But it doesn't necessarily you have to be a kind of uh, only that all the traditions princes are only down in the or in academia. Free actress could need some new theories to challenge social order that treats the poor and minorities as awful and the fairest need the fusion the energy that comes from exposure to the real world problems, you know. Just for you know, government scholarship as a reliability test for their writing. Um, and the theorists said that they, you know, need trying to work on like a better version or a better version of the the system of limit of define it better since with you know. Tea with sociology as a never ending kind of 
article of finding more and more information that's kind of science as a whole. So, strong term, but uh, most parts have been already explained. There has been some critiques about the Harlem movement. Um, some have mostly accused the movement of straying from its uh, materialist roots and drawing overlay on matters uh, that concern more middle class minorities like microaggressions, racial insurance, insults, stuff like that. And rather not, and not for foreign minorities like or like police brutality, unfair policing, etc. And the another concern that's been raised is that the movement's become excessively preoccupied with issues of identity as the post a really uh, hard nosed social analysis. Issues such as the role of multi racial people, the social contract of race, passing, etc. They argue that while those may pose as in Speaking intellectual puzzles, but they're kind of alive from pretty far from the central issues of a modern age. And some raise the question of whether the makes an unadequate account of economic democracy. Yeah, um, so it's kind of like on. Um, they kind of talk on get down those issues of relation to passing uh as white okay uh there's the argument of naturalism naturalism versus assimilation naturalism regarding people of color um those are two Types of you know interactions with the main group that basically has a last line and the side the nationalist side and kind of focuses on helping out the the group unless like say a a person of color and say a black man. Who uh, donates to black charities and um, donates to the community and lives in a probably the um, African American uh, community who um, um, uses uh, his knowledge he, he gained in his studies or his profession to help um, with the fears of. Young black men going to say it, um, many ports for music. While simulation it would be more like to a very young black man who lives in a integrated town and who, who um, is more and works for a more manly white dominated firm as a maybe a professional, say a doctor or of the lawyer, and, and uh, he's he's have on on the way of becoming an official part of their team or whatnot. I mean, uh, for there is that 
that people just I needed to see or have different um, faces and positions of power. Uh, and, you know, and then it's kind of like with current events, how um, we had you know, in Alaska, the panel loss to uh, the Democratic nominee. I forgot her name, but she's the first Alaskan native to hold a position. So she's probably inspired a lot of folks. And when I having people of color be depicted in a variety of different job positions of in a different you know, is this different in different lights, you know provides more kind of cohesive and sympathetic view rather than just having in all all of this group be betrayed in only certain ways, which promotes, of course, stereotypes. If, if you're having them all be the villain, that leads to some, you know, assimilations that all are kind of guilty of something. No, it's, a, it's a very long thing, but I think the short part of it is, is that CRT has been around for a long time, a few decades now, since this first car was being filming in the centers to doing a few classes in the workshops in the mid late 80s. It is college level, especially related to legal studies, so it's pretty advanced stuff. It's not been teach to anyone. You know, you know, that's not college level. It's not being taught in public schools or anything. You can see uh, how worse taught in schools would be if maybe a teacher who had, had a, of course, a network to um, kind of employ some of that in her teaching and her curriculum and you know, try to make her want to try not to. Uh, engage in unconscious racism or whatnot, you know, as well as trying and give a different examples of, of history rather than some of the very watered down versions that we've been taught of history in this country. It's, it's, it's not scary, it's basically just diving in, asking questions, and uh, about well, why haven't we taken account the perspectives of the people who are victims of, of um, let's say, uh, the mystery of civil rights or, or uh, the intended genocide of um, Native Americans or who were exploited in the 1960s by farms and whatnot, like, uh, for us when we probably get cheap labor, like the Latin Americans at the time who were in interior camps. Why are we taking this perspective of you know, white hate uh, in the folks just because they happen to maybe read a little bit on a read a book or so, maybe take a few interviews? It's, it's different going through something yourself and but in comparison to an outside looking in after the fact kind of thing. 
it's, it's here is nothing to be afraid of. It's not a boogeyman. It's a movement of questioning how racism has come about our society, who made it, how to, you know, make it better, hopefully fix it. Nothing negative. Well, there's still nuances between, you know, you know, the intersectionality uh, about which parts to focus on. And that's just kind of like uh, more on an individual's, you know, opinion. Say, so, yeah, um, an example they gave in the book is for some of the, uh, off movements that that it or that's short for Latino critical and was talking about via intersectionality the different um, sections that that Latino critical writers focus on and does uh, how would say in Latino man who is also gay from the picture would he showed a a baby a, a lot in and if you know a good a chunk of um 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 the writers are involved kind of like the role of capitalism in in Hispanic and Latin American and uh British in society. Why not? I think it's a whole of asking questions and trying to deal with, with uh, deal with different ones and, and difficult, you know, well, answers. Sometimes there is no right or wrong answer and whatnot. Of course, in how do you kind of come to terms with the part of this group, also part of that group, the intersection, you know? Yeah. Yes. I thought it hurts so to fuck so long. I don't think they fuck that. You got so fast and so long. That's a very thorough explanation. Thank you. No problem. So it's not racism towards white folks. It's the racist institutions that, you know, like, um, the justice system, the policing, targeting minorities that have already been set up that way and, and covertly trying to hold down everyone who's not the, the majority rule, right? Well, yes, that's pretty much the basis. It's, it's, it's not, you know, trying to be precious against white, precious against white folk or basically takeaways. Any power and whatnot is uh, attempt to try and get to share power to lift up, you know, generally the forces that have historically and presently been kind of pushed down. It's not trying to take anything away from anybody, it's trying to better understand how our world and our society works, hence, what ways, um, and it and it works the ways it works like that. That 
ways to kind of fix it and combat that, it's so on and so forth. And that's pretty much it's mostly focusing on more or less the society as a whole and mostly different institutions. It started off mainly as law, but now it's gone and it's inspired general sociology in itself. And some have, you know, started taking into account the, how it has affected our view of history. Like um, how certain folks have been more or erased from history, does not dismiss their accomplishments, have been, have been pushed aside, you know. You know, uh, all in just to keep up the status quo. It's kind of really ties into um, fairness theory and LGBT theory. Yeah, uh, on that. And that's, I know that with more modern documentaries, we do know that women do accomplish a great deal throughout the ages, that there were inventors, warlords, warriors, etc. They were not this you know, high man mind of being you know, delicate and himself. And that only really applied to the you know, type of white women. Maybe Asian women later down the road, but that's a long, long topic. Uh, or I think another time, well, I would probably need to do more research on. Yeah. Hmm. On the topic of intersectionality, do you also think it affects the healthcare system? Like, um, like, I, like I've heard that, um, that black women, um, some, some of their, um, their health issues go unnoticed because it's because, because it's not, you know, the standard default white woman. Well, well, it kind of depends on what the um, issue is. Then, for there's not a stereotype, you know, this has been kind of been in some psychological journals that that they kind of the stereotype that black folks can handle more pain, quote unquote, as gross as that sounds. So they tend to be kind of dismissive of black folks in general, and going back to women. There have uh, have been cases like in, in staying up to um, not be dismissive, and in some cases, this is also true. I think of Latina women and indigenous women; they would um, take it upon themselves to forcibly sterilize so that they would not be able to have children or whatnot. Um, there was also, I think, this was probably around the, the maybe slightly before the civil rights era, I think it was in the 40s or so, Tuskegee experiments, in which they would, they took a sample of black men and basically experimented on them by injecting them with, I think, a STD. Syphilis, I believe it was. Don't quote me on that. 
Um, it's terrible. It's unethical. It. What? It's terrible. It was unethical. Yeah, definitely. 100%. It's not just making different um, repercussions. There's a disrupt in uh, America's how, um, system and healthcare system due to that person among um, minorities. Yes, so um, there's, um, of course, regarding the Americans, um, in the 50s and 60s, the children were, would be kidnapped and given to white and brown genitals was to be quote unquote adopted. Um, there's actually a few the folks that you might know of that kind of went through that. A few actors, I believe, indigenous actors who knew um who were taken from their parents. Hence there's um there's also in that vein that um and there's case I think that I've already gone to the Supreme Court that's trying to try and knock down a, a uh, law or so that was made at that time that was made in response to no children being kidnapped. They made it so that no indigenous folks would have per se uh, of, um, where the child would go to and that they would go directly to a family member for parents that couldn't and took, take care of them. The parents later some folks were looking to knock on that. I'm not sure if they already have or not though. It's a real mess. And of course residential schools, that's a long history of that. Definitely have seen news. That's a long, gruesome story, but that's one that needs to be told, and that's one of the reasons that spiritual clients are hard against it, I think. And they don't want to um, acknowledge uh, what's actually happened or what their ancestors, in some cases, is, or because his parents, grandparents, and then actually did. So they give this kind of large down version. So they won't have to deal all with, you know, whether they can just put themselves on the and say, see, we're stiffed about it, and they're really not. It's sad. It is. And discouraging. And also, I, I was thinking that, that the ruling class, they only allow incremental change so long as it benefits them, right? That's the theory, we had Derek Bell, it's interest convergence. The, it goes that they only really allowed 
to change if it coincides with and their interests or so. If if it doesn't, they just kind of leave it be. And that's so. Um, well, I think I've been pointing out that that's kind of one of the reasons. Might be one of the reasons that that a lot of you know of rights and things that have been helpful have sort of been rolled back, you know, to make it harder because it no longer converts with the latest interest. And of course, I think it's well really bite them in the day or sooner or later. I hope so. And that's kind of uh, the gist of the theory that they'll have. Now, it's not really not out of true kindness or altruism, it's because, you know, then you need to do it in order to make themselves look better, the country look better, or XYZ, I think. Kind of like a PR thing. Yeah, it's kind of a big PR thing. Sorry, I'm just a little bit speechless. Yeah, I, I can understand. And it's a whole very complicated thing. And what's really kind of really sad about it is that the right side, they know it. They, that's the politicians or so in the show, they know and that uh, it's not the thing that they're describing this, that they're using that to try and fear monger to uh, their, uh, this particular base. Generally, uh, my folks who have not been educated on this subject, who haven't read any media on the books, who haven't really been trained to understand and social logical concepts and measures and how to tell a good bad, uh, article from a bad one or reliable article from one that's riddled with misinformation etc they're using that as well as you know different sites or so it's kind of like the um I think you missed there, there was this group or so, Lines for America or something, I'm nursing on, uh, on a newsreel, and they had this little Twitter, and they were, especially in Florida, and they were, you know, whining, thing or so, about uh, how to protect the kids, don't uh, make it so that gender or sexuality is taught in schools, they're all groomers, all teachers are groomers and stuff, you know, which is extremely insulting. A, groom a groomer is uh, someone whose basis is to get it to manipulate a child for sexual act. It's not some, someone like a teacher or something and correcting a student on and the pronouns of a nursery or saying, instead of when someone asked where they, if they went off with their wife, they said, oh no, I'm going on vacation with my husband. It's not the same thing. 
as a term for a particular abuser, and of course they know it. They know how it's going to look. They know that they tie any sexual abuse and predatory behavior to LGBT folks that are kind of the uh, um, limit progress and whatnot. And as far as I know, they that's why the Santos asshole is working to sign that into you know the law so that it can't taste about gender and co or in for schools. Of course, this is also this is this is kind of funny actually. This is called some uh civil disobedience, you know, which they call the law to a T. Mm -hmm. And one uh, person, I think, and one teacher said that they sent a letter home with to parents or whatnot. They sent an email stating that since it's the law in our states that I cannot talk about gender, they will no, not refer to anyone and with any gender pronouns or speak on gender at all. They will use the, a kind of you know, neutral they them for every student. They would not refer to any student as boy or girl or any, anything regarding anything regarding swimming or masculine or man or woman. They would not say anything regarding using those terms. And of course, the same people had pushed for the law to get passed were on Twitter whining about that and whatnot. And and people were calling them out on their BS, like, you sent for this. You literally I had this last census and petition on the side just for the can't speak about gender. Like, they, woman, female, man, and male, those are concepts of gender. He, him, and she, her, those are gender pronouns. Indeed. What, what exactly were you expecting? And also, I, I can't find that type of pettiness. I strive for that type of pettiness. And also, I want to say, I want to say that sorry. children have an inherent understanding of gender early on, like uh, um, hetero 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 families usually consist of a mommy or a daddy, and they and you know they use. The gendered pronouns of that typical that typical you know relationship and so they usually understand that mommies use she and 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 daddies use he and so they should under they already understand what gender is even if they can't properly properly um describe it but they know what it is well that's like no steps for it yeah, just... they might be able to talk about it or express it in words or so, but have, have an element of understanding. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. It's, I think I wonder if like, that's, uh, uh, that's kind of what was my youngest memory of when I was like three. That's kind of when I first was discovering that uh, I did not fit the Sister Northern, when me and my twin were kind of playing, I was like, now I'm a boy. Now I'm a 
thing. I was kind of playing with the car thing. It was that was kind of constant while I was a little kid. And um, so as I got older, I was kind of discouraged from doing that and whatnot. It was kind of led to some very impressive uh, things and stuff lately. But even back even as a three-year-old, I had and this concept that uh, I'm not a uh, I might not have been able to fully understand it. Yeah, so I'm not even sure I, I might have time, but everyone did that. I wish. Yes, I was just switching back and forth, and sometimes you know, it's at the same time. And this kind of goes to show you. Yeah. And also, it still demonstrates that gender is a social contract. Uh, social construct and also it's a matter of respect you know when people typically introduce themselves as like for example hi my name's john and may maybe this john has a mustache beard and you would hear maybe co-workers say say oh john he wore some really nice shoes the other day and so you can pick up that this person wants to be called he but also People who don't want to respect people's pronouns, they're just be not being respectful. They're not honoring their place in society. They're trying to other them. More or less. And they're best like, from what I've seen or whatnot, their favorite claim is that it's, that it's just a delusion and that we shouldn't, they shouldn't be forced to, you know, you say, you to, they're being included in quote unquote eye delusions. And I'm like, that's not how delusions work, first of all. Delusions are kind of more complicated than that. And again, kind of ironically, beyond screeching or telling them that's not uh, that what they're, they're seeing or what, they're believe, what they believe is not true, is all fake and whatnot, does not help person folks that do suffer from delusions. I've read personally that, like, say, someone who is maybe a paranoid schizophrenia, you should be kind of required, you listen, and you try to, maybe if you have a decent and um, trusting relationship, kind of remind them of, you know, uh, of concepts that, that are more based off curiosity or something, try to maybe use logic and whatnot and stuff, but you do not yell or screech or deny that dismiss that's what they're believe or what they're seeing. That does not help us. That's hard make things worse, really. Yeah. Um, and of course, needless to say, these men and women, uh, no, Binary folks, all bygenders like myself, we're not deluded. That is not how delusions work. Like, gender identity, like race, is a, like you said, is a social concept. Unlike um, race, it's kind of a bit more um, performance raw and it's associated and, and it's. And it's so nice in this country, it's doing a bit more colors at the time. 
said, being forced away by restless ladies can pant someone out, have short hair. It wasn't not like maybe hundred heck, even maybe some scenarios this present day. There's one around uh for the states. Needs that may personally still say that they're trying to be men or that's that they are not meaning you know, true selves or whatnot. Continuous invalidation, it's entirely ridiculous. Nice. I was thinking that it goes back to critical race theory. It goes back to trying to authoritatively mold people into the the middle white class um, mold when people, you know, aren't always in that mold. More and more less than regarding being at the and binary again the like what binary and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And one kind of concept with that is is that they would use is how all minorities were treated all they treated more like um white folks are treated uh, should be true what they thought that should be true more like black folks where they stand between the binary. Okay, and that nothing to it was um pretty effective way to try and pit minorities one against the other. So um, I remember reading like a section where one Latino man, I think in the sixties and whatnot, mm -hmm. was trying to get that he was part of a subset of, of Latino folks that were trying to have a Spanish or Latino be a considered white or so. So um, that's that's kind of sort of died down. And of course, the previous examples, Italians, Jewish folks, Irish, they were at one point considered non-white. But after you know, certain then steps in and took it into time, and the the uh, passive whiteness started to apply to them. And so it's kind of like a it's a basically used to and then pit works against each other for a divide. And of course, you know, considering overlapping issues like education level, so you know how to make class, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole big complicated mess, mess of concepts. And then we have to spend years to study it. And also, like, um, um, don't quote me on this, but I remember that they let in the the Irish, the Italians, the Poles, the Polish, in because mm -hmm. you know they were more afraid of the minorities. You know, the people with color. They were more afraid of them, so they decided it was in their best interest to unite with the people that they put down because it benefited them. Well, yes. Like you'd have to go pretty far back in history to find, you know, a point where um, the point in time where Irish and Germans and folks were were uh, were more or less treated as non-white. I mean, I think the earliest uh, example you might find would be a reference to I think the 
professional comics are built off an earning. And at the time, you know, first had a negative kind of attitude towards and, um, orphans and uh, this was, I think, around the curtails of prejudice against the Irish. So having her be designed with red hair showed as a shorthand and to show that she was of Irish descent was kind of radical or so. And of course, you probably wouldn't much, you know, nowadays, with the exception of beer swords, that's more due to religion, right? Um, for the most part. And the moments of ethnicity, mm. some, uh, some features associated with Jewish, mm. which, you know, it's just ethnicity. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll do an episode on that. Yeah, it's kind of. Yeah, um, and also, it's kind of complicated on that level. For the most part, I think now there's Jewish folks, you know, memories were seen as white or whatnot. That's kind of a picture that's been painted. But they're still facing heavy um, prejudice because they're Jewish. Of course, this isn't touching on, you know, Jewish folks that are, say, black or, you know, Middle Eastern or one of the different, or the different sex, sections of Jewish um, um, groups. It's very long and complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see, I, I had some videos though from Kenley Crenshaw, some or some were from Kenley Crenshaw. Uh, I think I sent them um, um, on in the Discord. Uh, yeah, we can play them. Like, uh, okay, uh, I don't think we should play on them. I think one's a very, there's some very long ones, but I think there's, um, a few that would probably be beneficial. Can we, Dr. Crenshaw should be playing Slant Bell than I ever could. This one might be this one. Let me see. The Urgency of Intersectionality by Kimberly Crenshaw. Well, that's more about this. No one's had depression, but it does just bring up intersectionality. There's one, I think, here the pop that's called Creative Crenshaw, which Crenshaw is what it is. And the above that is a group of and there's this one is a very long one where it's called and there's no that's not a of course that one of the 
That one is the one that it that brings up how uh, you know different identities overlap in you know society and in individuals. A person can be you know, white, but also a woman and disabled. So they have they're different from being white, but they have faced uh, discrimination and oppression being. Um, and, you know, a woman and the same. This, uh, I think, I think we should play the urgency of intersectionality and let's see, creator of the term critical race theory. I think there's two should there. That one's maybe a little long. I know that one in the middle, uh, critical race theory and why is there a tech is less than hour long. I'm not sure that would you know, be beneficial. How about the TED one, the TED talk? Uh, yeah. Let's see. Um, tool. All right, let me share the, this one. Let's see. Um, yeah, that's one. Hmm. Should we play it? Yes. Okay. I think um, yeah, I think people need to see this one. It's kind of gruesome. I'm not gonna lie. But you know, it's a kind of you gotta know thing. I'd like to try something new. Those of you who are able, please stand up. Okay, so I'm gonna name some names. When you hear a name that you don't recognize, you can't tell me anything about them, I'd like you to take a seat and stay seated. The last person standing, we're gonna see what they know, okay? All right, Eric Garner. Mike Brown, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray. So those of you who are still standing, I'd like you to turn around and take a look. I, I'd say half to most of the people are still standing. So let's continue. Michelle Cousseau. Tanisha Anderson, Ara Russer, Megan Hockaday. So if we look around again, there are about four people still standing. And actually, I'm not going to put you on the spot. I just say that to encourage transparency so you could be seated. So those of you who recognize the first group of names know that these were African-Americans who've been killed by the police over the last two and a half years. What you may not know is that the other list is also African-Americans who 
have been killed within the last two years. Only one thing distinguishes the names that you know from the names that you don't know, gender. So let me first let you know that there's nothing at all distinct about this audience that explains the pattern of recognition that we've just seen. I've done this exercise dozens of times around the country. I've done it to women's rights organizations. I've done it with civil rights groups. I've done it with professors. I've done it with students. I've done it with psychologists. I've done it with sociologists. I've done it even with progressive members of Congress. And everywhere, the awareness of the level of police violence that Black women experience is exceedingly low. Now, it is surprising, isn't it, that this would be the case? I mean, there are two issues involved here. There's police violence against African Americans, and there's violence against women, two issues that have been talked about a lot lately. But when we think about who is implicated by these problems, when we think about who's victimized by these problems, the names of these Black women never come to mind. Now, communications experts tell us that when facts do not fit with the available frames, people have a difficult time incorporating new facts into their way of thinking about a problem. These women's names have slipped through our consciousness because there are no frames for us to see them, no frames for us to remember them, no frames for us to hold them. As a consequence, reporters don't lead with them, policymakers don't think about them, and, and politicians aren't encouraged or demanded that they speak to them. Now, you might ask, well, why does a frame matter? I mean, after all, an issue that affects Black people and an issue that affects women, wouldn't that necessarily include Black people who are women and women who are Black people? Well, the simple answer is that this is a trickle-down approach to social justice, and many times it just doesn't work. Without frames that allow us to see how social problems impact all the members of a targeted group, many will fall through the cracks of our movements, left to suffer in virtual isolation. But it doesn't have to be this way. Many years ago, I began to use the term intersectionality to deal with the fact that many of our social justice problems like racism and sexism are often overlapping, creating multiple levels of social injustice. Now, the experience that gave rise to intersectionality was my chance encounter with a woman named Emma de Graffenried. Emma de Graffenried was an African-American woman, a working wife, and a mother. I actually read about Emma's story from the pages of a legal opinion written by a judge who had dismissed Emma's claim of race and gender discrimination against a local car manufacturing plant. Emma, like so many African-American women, sought better employment for her family and for others. She wanted to create a better life for her children and for her family. But she applied for a job 
and she was not hired. And she believed that she was not hired because she was a black woman. Now, the judge in question dismissed Emma's suit. And the argument for dismissing the suit was that the employer did hire African-Americans and the employer hired women. The real problem though, that the judge was not willing to acknowledge was what Emma was actually trying to say, that the African-Americans that were hired, usually for industrial jobs, maintenance jobs, were all men. And the women that were hired, usually for secretarial or, or front office work, were all white. Only if the court was able to see how these policies came together would he be able to see the double discrimination that Emma de Graffenried was facing? But the court refused to allow Emma to put two causes of action together to tell her story because he believed that by allowing her to do that, she would be able to have preferential treatment. She'd have an advantage by being able to have two swings at the bat when African-American men and white women only had one swing at the back. But of course, neither African-American men or white women needed to combine a race and gender discrimination claim to tell the story of the discrimination they were experiencing. Why wasn't the real unfairness law's refusal to protect African-American women simply because their experiences weren't exactly the same as white women and African-American men. Rather than broadening the frame to include African-American women, the court simply tossed their case completely out of court. Now, as a student of anti-discrimination law, as a feminist, as an anti-racist, I was struck by this case. It, it, it felt to me like injustice squared. So, so first of all, black women weren't allowed to work at the plant. Second of all, the court doubled down on this exclusion by making it legally inconsequential. And to boot, there was no name for this problem. And we all know that where there's no name for a problem, you can't see a problem. And when you can't see a problem, you pretty much can't solve it. Many years later, I, I come to recognize that the problem that Emma was facing was a framing problem. The frame that the court was using to see gender discrimination or to see race discrimination was partial and it was distorting. For me, the, the challenge that I faced was trying to figure out whether there was an alternative narrative, a prism that would allow us to see Emma's dilemma, a, a prism that would allow us to rescue her from the cracks in the law, that would allow judges to see her story. So it occurred to me, maybe a, a simple analogy to an intersection might allow judges to better see Emma's dilemma. So if we think about this intersection, the roads to the intersection would be the way that the workforce was structured by race and by gender. And then the traffic 
in those roads would be the hiring policies and, and the other practices that ran through those roads. Now, because Emma was both black and female, she was positioned precisely where those roads overlapped, experiencing the simultaneous impact of the company's gender and race traffic. The law, the law is like that ambulance that shows up and is ready to treat Emma only if it can be shown that she was harmed on the race road or on the gender road, but not where those roads intersected. So what do you call being impacted by multiple forces and then abandon to fend for yourself? Intersectionality seemed to do it for me. I would go on to learn that African-American women like other women of color, like other socially marginalized people all over the world, were facing all kinds of dilemmas and challenges as a consequence of intersectionality, intersections of race and, and gender, of heterosexism, transphobia, xenophobia, ableism, all of these social dynamics come together and create challenges that are sometimes quite unique. But in the same way that intersectionality raised our awareness to the way that Black women live their lives, it also exposes the tragic circumstances under which African-American women die. Police violence against Black women is very real. The level of violence that Black women face is such that it's not surprising that some of them do not survive their encounters with police. Black girls as young as seven, great-grandmothers as old as 95, have been killed by the police. They've been killed in their living rooms, in their bedrooms. They've been killed in their cars. They've been killed on the street. They've been killed in front of their parents and they've been killed in front of their children. They have been shot to death. They have been stomped to death. They have been suffocated to death. They have been manhandled to death. They have been tasered to death. They've been killed when they've called for help. They've been killed when they were alone, and they've been killed when they were with others. They have been killed shopping while Black, driving while Black, having a mental disability while Black, having a domestic disturbance while Black. They've even been killed being homeless while Black. They've been killed talking on the cell phone, laughing with friends, sitting in a car reported as stolen, and making a U-turn in front of the White House with an infant strapped in the backseat of the car. Why don't we know these stories? Why is it that their lost lives don't generate the same amount of media attention and communal outcry as the lost lives of their fallen brothers? 
It's time for a change. So what can we do? In 2014, the African-American Policy Forum began to demand that we say her name at rallies, at protests, at conferences, at meetings, anywhere and everywhere that state violence against Black bodies is being discussed. But saying her name is, is, is not enough. We have to be willing to do more. We have to be willing to bear witness, to bear witness to the often painful realities that we would just rather not confront. The everyday violence and humiliation that many Black women have had to face. Black women across color, age, gender expression, sexuality, and ability. So we have the opportunity right now, bearing in mind that some of the images that I'm about to share with you may be triggering for some, to collectively bear witness to some of this violence. We're gonna hear the voice of the phenomenal Abby Dobson. And as we sit with these women, some who've experienced violence and some who have not survived them, we have an opportunity to reverse what happened at the beginning of this talk, when we could not stand for these women because we did not know their names. So at the end of this clip, there's gonna be a roll call. Several black women's names will come up. I'd like those of you who are able to join us in saying these names as loud as you can, randomly, disorderly. Let's create a cacophony of sound to represent our intention to hold these women up, to sit with them, to bear witness to them, to bring them into the light. Say, say, Kayla Lord, 
the South is so Makia Boy, Shelly Frey, Tariqa, So I said at the beginning, if we can't see a problem, we can't fix a problem. Together, we've come together to bear witness to these women's lost lives. But the time now is to move from mourning and grief to action and transformation. This is something that we can do. It's up to us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I need to see that. Yes. Kind of All those women were being abused by people in power and mm -hmm. state sanctioned murder. It's terrible. Really, uh, um, uh, yeah, it does kind of make it feel a bit solid. Um, <clears throat> I'm almost forgot. Um, uh, let's see, uh, one more of these videos. I think the uh, the last one I think is the one that basically goes kind of breaks down CRT a bit more. And I think it's a relatively short one, maybe only a few minutes long. Okay. And now it's not even 10 minutes long. The PBS News okay. Hour, what is critical race theory? That one? Um, I think it's. I think it's called Crater of Term Crowbarcery. Kimberly Crenshaw explains what it really is. Um, I think it's um, on this score, I think it's the last one in, in the end of the. No. Ooh, in the end. Found it. Yeah, uh, okay. yeah, there it is. All right. Some of you may be wondering what's the deal with the GOP freakout over critical race theory? It's everywhere and was even used as a GOP call to arms at a conservative Christian conference last week. The old Marxism used economics to gain control. The new Marxism, the new Marxism uses identity politics. And the result is something that looks nothing like America. There's no reason to believe that this new Marxism will result in anything but what the old Marxism resulted in. Critical race theory is racism, pure and simple and it should be rejected by every American of every race. And let me tell you right now, critical race theory is bigoted, it is a lie, and it is every bit as racist as the Klansmen in white sheets. Okay, but here's the thing. None of this is random. This is the result of a highly manufactured strategy created by seasoned political operatives looking for the perfect wedge issue to take back power something to combat the energy of the multiracial coalition that took Georgia, and something to replace Blue Lives Matter, since January 6th exposed that slogan as a sham. 
conservatives in Congress took note and started chattering, which was then ingested into the feeder system of Fox News. The tagline disseminated and the war against critical race theory took off. No one wants a boogeyman near their kids and certainly not in their classroom. The operatives know this. Those fears got played up and now along with the fear of trans kids taking over junior high handball, parents are fighting with school boards in, in cities and towns across the country over curricula that they believe teaches white kids that they are racist. None of this is actually happening. But who cares about a little old thing like the truth when you have the perfect campaign buzzword for 2022? It even has the magic word in it, race. Joining me now is Kimberly Crenshaw, co-founder and executive director of the African American Policy Forum and the legal scholar who coined the term critical race theory. Uh, so it is your fault, madame. Uh, I, you know, I, I tripped over the curb this morning and I went, critical race theory? Damn you! You tripped me on the curb. It, did it, it does everything bad. I mean, and the cicadas, y'all really need to stop with the cicadas, critical race theory. That was not nice. We um, can throw everything in the bag. Everything, everything in the bag. So you know, I just wrote down a few of the notes of what people are calling um, critical race theory. Marxism, racism, bigoted, uh, let's let's start with the Marxism. That's their favorite one. They're using that every single time. Uh, and I, I hate to ask you, I hate to ask dumb questions, so please don't think that I'm dumb. <laughs> Is critical race theory well, Marxism? Well, you know what? Here's, here's the thing, Joy. Um, critical race theory is not so much a thing, it's a way of looking at a thing. It's a way of looking at race. It's a way of looking at why after so many decades, centuries actually, since the emancipation, we have patterns of inequality that are enduring, they are stubborn. And the point of critical race theory originally was to think and talk about how law contributed to the subordinate status of African-Americans, of indigenous people, and of an entire uh, group of people who were, were coming to our shores uh, from, from Asia. Um, and the point was, quite frankly, to understand the problem in order to intervene in it, to understand why the greatest uh, uh, hopes for our republic were not being realized, even though these hopes were encoded in law. So critical race theory just inherits the uh, beliefs and the hopes of Frederick Douglass, of, of Martin Luther King, who basically want the law to do for the freed people what the law did for enslavers. And we picked that up in the 70s and 80s after the civil rights movement to say, okay, so now we've got this big civil rights movement. We have all these laws in the books, uh, but things really aren't looking as different as they should if we are really the society that we say we are. So we put about the, the task of understanding how law wasn't just the neutral referee. Um, law wasn't always on our side. In fact, law was less on our side than poor on our side. And we wanted to tell these stories in order to do better with the promises that are embedded in the Constitution. That's what's in critical race theory. So is critical race theory, does, is there a K through 12 curriculum <laughs> that right now is being, I'm sorry, I know it's a dumb question, but uh, is there a K through 12 curriculum on critical race theory that's being taught in schools around this country? Well, look, Joy, if it was news to most Americans that critical race theory was in K through 12, it was news to me too. I'm one of the co-authors of one of the few books on critical race theory. I think I would know 
if we were being taught in K through 12. I mean, basically critical race theory, classic critical race theory is a law school course. And it's really, you know, not taught as widely as I would hope it would. Yeah. But here's the deal. This is not about whether anything called critical race theory is in K through 12. What they're calling critical race theory doesn't exist anyway. It is a backlash effort to reverse the racial reckoning unlike any we've seen in our lifetime. And as you pointed out at the beginning, they can't say, you know, we're for racism. They can't say Derek Chauvin should have killed George Floyd with his hand in his pocket, looking like he was completely uh, without a care in the world. They couldn't say that. So they, they, they looked around and found a, a strange sounding theory that they could put all of the grievances and uh, resentments in and mobilize people around this boogeyman. And, if, yeah. and, and if, if our side can't really understand what's going on, it's going to work. It's worked in the past. It, yeah. it worked to end reconstruction and it can work to end this reckoning too. And uh, the, a gentleman named uh, Christopher Rufo, who's very vigorously to, uh, requested to be on the show, we're going we're gonna to take him up on it and let him come on uh, this week and, and invite him on. He literally said, we've successfully frozen their brand critical race theory into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions, we will eventually turn it toxic as we put all the various cultural insanities under that brand category. To wit, Fox News has mentioned critical race theory nearly 1,300 times in the past three and a half months. And we've now discovered that a lot of these parents that are showing up at school boards uh, in vain against their children being taught that they're you know, racist, Turns out they are actually Republican activists, not just regular old parents. Um, Big surprise there, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it is not not surprising at all. Uh, so I guess I, I guess my last question to you would be: What do you worry is 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 sort of the purpose of what they're trying to do? Because this is political. It is about getting out the white you know voters in 2022. Is there a bigger risk uh, to naming critical race theory as a, some sort of Marxist plot? Well, of course. I mean, the, the biggest risk is that this tried and true framing of anti-racism as racist against white people is going to win again. It won at the end of the Civil War when civil rights were framed as reverse discrimination against white people. It won after Brown versus Board of Education when integration was framed as damaging uh, white children. And it could win now if people don't wake up and have a sense of what's at stake. So yeah, you're going to hear all these stories, cherry pick stories. Turns out a lot of them were not verifiable that, that the other side is putting out there. You're not going to hear, and you should, what is happening with these bands? You're not going to hear that an essay by Ta-Nehisi Coates was the reason why a school teacher was fired. You're not going to hear about the affinity groups in, in colleges and universities and the programs, the educational programs yeah. um, that are, are being canceled. So we need to see materially what this is doing in order to weigh into this. If anyone was mobilized by last year, if anyone is concerned about what they saw on January 6th, then yeah. you are on our side with this and you need to get involved. Damn. Right to the point and precise. Not much. Yeah, it's, it's, it's No, you did a really good explanation, too. I feel a lot yeah. more educated now. Thank you. No problem. That's right. Shall we wrap this up? 
I, I think she's, she, she was very authoritative on the subject. Yeah, I think it's understandable. Uh, she was part of the many founders that helped define the, the term and subsequent terms related to it. Just, I think I think she has a right to sound authoritative on it. No, no, it's, so, it's a good thing. Okay. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I think that wraps us up. This was Star. And this was CNC Possibly Women. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. See ya.